coming up on Art Palace. And then the mortar on the back of the building was like a yellow orange. So that, think about it, it's the West. When the sun set, the building would glow. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Ramona Toussaint, Tour and Education Outreach Program Director for the Society for the Preservation of Music Hall. I was visiting one of the churches with our curator, Amy, to, we're looking at some of these windows. Um, one of the the archivist of the church is Ed Ryder. Who, oh, yeah. You know, I, and, and so he's been involved, I guess, in the... Yeah, he's the former archi- archivist for P&G. Yeah. And he sits as a VP on the board of SPMH. SPMH, so what... So the Society for the Preservation of Music Hall. Okay, and yeah, he was talking about something, the the staining of the bricks. Oh, yeah, that's a big thing. Yeah. All right, say it with me. Rund Bogenstiel. Rund Bogenstiel. Yes, isn't that fun? I, know, I didn't take German, <laughs> but I like, I'm, I'm assuming is this German? Yes, the king Rund of Prussia Bogen- wanted his own architectural style. Okay. Yeah, not too full of himself. But no, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know I mean, anything about the guy. I mean, maybe I'd like him. Maybe I want to have a beer with him. But <laughs> yeah, he's just, um, he is, uh, he, so American architects just, we didn't have a school, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we learned from Europe. Right. And so um, a lot of the American architects learned by doing, or they went over to Europe to get trained, you know? Yeah. But Rund Bogenstiel was a new architectural style that, was uh, requested by the King of Prussia and his designers went out and looked at all these different styles and basically made a mishmash of things. And this polychromatic coloring, which is like on Music Hall, which is like the red brick Mm -hmm. um, and uh, sandstone. Mm -hmm. Like there's like belt coursing it's called it goes it's like stripes that go around the whole building right right right, right. and then there's sandstone art carved that tells you what the building is because people didn't know how to read really well back then not many people knew how to read um and uh so what are the like their images of literally like music thing I, i'm yeah, not even sure like it's I've like metaphorical this. like um for example um there might be um ivy there's a lot of ivy and a lot of okay. the medallions that are carved into the building. Mm-hmm. And ivy, you know, is always green. It's evergreen. So it stood for longevity, long, long uh, eternal life okay. kind of thing, right? And But it would be wrapped around, let's say, a lyre. Mm, okay. Or you have pictures, like carvings of birds singing mm. to represent choral singing. Right? So music, choral singing. And then you might have like... Um, like a compass and like, you know, gears depicted mm-hmm. on the building um, to represent machinery and new inventions and mm-hmm. mechanics. So these are the different uses for the hall. And so on the different parts of the hall where those things happened is where those art carvings exist. Oh, okay. So like you had to be rich or you had to be in clergy <laughs> to be well-educated back then. So this is so the common people can just look at the building and know that it was, and of course, high Victorian Gothic, like cathedrals and mm. churches, right? Um, you know, point to the sky. It's it's a, you know, homage to God, right? Well, this was a homage to industry and art. So when you said that it represents industry, how I guess we think of Music Hall now as being about music. Obviously. Right, 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 so right. where is that where is that industry part come from? Yeah, that's a great story. Actually, that's my favorite part about it mm. is that because of where we were located, Cincinnati on the Ohio River, everybody knows that Cincinnati was like, you know, seventh largest city in the mm-hmm. United States at the time. Well, you know, given that there was really nothing out west. <laughs> it was still cowboys and you know, that kind <laughs> of like pioneer days. Yeah. Um 
So, you know, Cincinnati. We were were the art palace of the West. That's right. We were also considered the Athens of the West, the Paris of America, um, which was a term that was coined after the big May Festival, the first May Festival. But um, but just going back to that is that, you know, we dug this canal Mm -hmm. that, you know, before that canal was there, you had to go way all around to move goods and, and people and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So when people were coming in from Europe and such, and they were landing in like Philadelphia and New York and all these harbor towns, people would ask them where they're from, and they go, "And we're going to Cincinnati," because it was so big and booming and up and coming. I mean, we had we had work, like labor shortages, so we were very attractive to a lot of immigrants, especially Germans, who you know were not like you know the Irish that you know you hear potato famine and all that stuff. Yeah, uh, that big wave. I mean, these folks were highly skilled. They had money. They were entrepreneurs. They were craftsmen. Um, and they came and they populated this area. And Cincinnati really became a huge center of commerce and um, innovation and new inventions. And uh, you had to show that stuff off because we didn't have the internet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they advertised and they had these big grand expositions. And Cincinnati wasn't the only one that had them. Mm-hmm. But Cincinnati is one of the top big ones. And people would like thousands would come from all over the whole U.S. and sometimes from Europe. Yeah. To come here like we were number one in publishing in the United States. We were number one in horticulture exports to Europe. Yeah. We were number one in wine. I mean, number one in beer. Like, we drank half of it, but <laughs> all the beer we produced. But yeah, we were really, really big. And a lot of those immigrants settled in the over the Rhine area. I mean, this is a story that we know really well from our city's history. But if you notice, a lot of the businesses are south of Central Parkway, and a lot of the residences, you know, like smaller buildings when you walk through over the Rhine now, were north of that because that was like the outer outer right and all these immigrants brought with them not only their trade Mm -hmm. but their cultural traditions you know so they would sit around the table at beer gardens and um papa and all that fun (laughs) stuff right and it was a family affair and it was mainly the men that were part of these singing societies and sanger fest Mm-hmm. Um, and we still have a little celebration now, but these were really big, like especially with the immigrants all over. And Cincinnati had so many singing societies that the national like headquarters was here in Cincinnati. Now I'm digressing into art oh, that's <laughs> and, right. and and culture, but these are the same people that were the laborers and the workers, yeah. you know. And so with all of this innovation going on. Um, they needed a place to show off their wares. Think about how big the music hall building is, mm-hmm. you know? So now think back uh, before music hall, they had this building called Sanger Halla, which was, stands for singing hall, mm-hmm. but it was an exhibition building too. So this is like prior to the like real world's fairs. Right. They would build like this huge like Disneyland epic, like temporary buildings all around, you know, these like central the central building and people would buy tickets. They'd bring the whole family and they'd go to see all the new amazing stuff that was being invented. And, um, it brought in a lot of money for the city. Yeah. And the Ohio mechanics Institute was really big in that. So that this was like craftsmen, you know, um, the Ohio mechanics Institute here in Cincinnati, like believed in educating the middle class mm-hmm. and the middle class lived really well. And if the middle class lived really well, the wealthy people lived really well. And they wanted art and culture. And that made you a better citizen and all that stuff. So all these things were happening simultaneously to create this perfect storm of like innovation and culture. And in fact, art and and industry were more inextricably linked back then. I mean, there were certain arts that were just at a more, they were considered more professional, like the wood carving movement, mm-hmm. right? That was very practical because it was furniture, but actually it was to show wealth, mm-hmm. you know? And after the Civil War, when we were building ourselves up, I mean, this is what's happening a lot in Cincinnati. Like, we were building up. Um, the women's job became to have beauty in their home. 
because if your husband was going out on you and your kids were a hot mess, it was probably because you didn't have beauty in your home. So these <laughs> women played a really, really big role in, in the art and culture development, while the men kind of concentrated on, you know, practical building, mechanics, inventions. You know, if you had a thought, when I do outreach for kids right now, um, I go into this whole thing is that everything in the world is created twice, once in your head mm -hmm. and then once in the world. And how do you show people? You have to draw it. You have to build it. Little sculptures. Like, so the whole idea of a museum kind of started with these little exhibits of like, this is to scale what this building would look like. And so in that way, painting, men could be painters back then. Women could not. Mm-hmm. They could do the decorative arts like pottery, right? Well, or, or I mean, there are there are some examples of women painters at that time, but they're they yes. are they're rare. Mm -hmm. You know, it is it is it was not the norm. You know, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, definitely not considered mm -hmm. necessarily culturally appropriate for a woman to partake in. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. So you have that's why you have very few women painters through a lot of history, and the ones mm -hmm. who are well known are, are so few and far between. Um, because it was, they were some, they were rebels. Yeah, they were rebels. We had rebels even back then. But, um, you know, these folks were, were held in high regard, you know, for what they did. Yeah. And, um, for example, the Hook and Hastings organ, which was like one of the largest organs in the world at the mm -hmm. time that it was built, it was certainly the largest in, since, you know, in the United States, um, a hundred women volunteers carved all 121 of those panels to cover mm -hmm. the pipes of that huge 50 by 60 foot organ. Yeah. And they were all volunteers because they were learning because of course, Mariah Longworth Nichols was having some wood carving done in her home mm -hmm. and all of her lady friends were there like, we want to do that too, you know? Some of, if if you're listening to this and you listen to the last episode, some of some of the pieces we talked about in that episode came from, or some of the art car furniture we looked at came yeah. from her home and were made for her. In fact, I think we spent a lot of time talking about the corner uh, cupboard, and mm -hmm. that was one that I pretty positive was commissioned for her. So it's this uh, cupboard. Uh, or almost like a wardrobe that fits into a corner. Nice. It's very uh, ornate, has like Thor and Freya on the front. So it has this nice. like cool mytho mythological. And you were talking about the women carvers. Like most of the pieces in our collection are carved by women. Mm -hmm. The designers were off, you know, the designers right. were often men. They were often students of the, you know, Pittman and Fry. Yeah, yeah. So you know, help kind of start the school of design mm -hmm. at, UC, at UC and then there was a branch that branched off and became the art Academy of Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And all of these things have connections to music hall mm -hmm. because as I mentioned, the Sanger Halla being one of these like large buildings that was like the center of these huge expositions. Um, that was a temporary building. I mean, it had dirt floor it had, over the yeah. years. It got a leaky roof. It was just awful falling apart and, you know, the story that we tell is that Reuben Springer went to a May festival with the second one. It was held in Sanger Halla and like it had a tin roof, this building, and there was a <laughs> storm. And as the paper described it, it sounded like um, dried peas on a drum. <laughs> it drowned out the music. Right. And he was like, this is ridiculous. And he had been thinking about like a proper hall yeah. for the expositions, which were great moneymakers for the city and for the this choral festival was new and uh literally everybody in the whole city pretty much came out to the parade and came out to see it and like tens you know ten thousand people standing outside <laughs> like so he's the one who suggested building this proper hall this music hall and the two exposition wings that were attached to it. So it's actually three separate buildings that were connected by mm -hmm. bridges with carriageways that went through it. Even though from the front, it looks like one. Looks like one. And um, he, you know, there was a contest. You know, several designers, you know, architects were asked to submit drawings. And Samuel Hannaford, mm -hmm. who's done a lot in this city, yeah. uh, you know, he was chosen, and he did Memorial Hall next door and City Hall down the street, and a couple other buildings were right around the Music Hall and. And uh, he was chosen, and um, 
yeah, it was it was perfect for expositions because n- what we call North Hall and South Hall mm-hmm. that are you know kind of like the wings. If you if you look at a picture, it doesn't look like it, but if you look for the carriageways, that's a sheer sign that there's two three separate buildings. So probably if you if you got on sort of a Google map view of it, you could probably oh, see it very clearly. You can see three distinct rooftops yeah. really, really clearly. And um, North Hall was used, it was called Power or Machinery Hall, mm-hmm. and it was used to show off all the new inventions. Mm-hmm. And then South Hall was labeled Art and Horticulture Hall. So it was kind of like what you would think of as like one of those home and garden shows. I mean, think of it that way. Yeah. Think of it like, I mean, there was nothing like music hall, mm-hmm. you know, a permanent building to do all of this. It was our first civic center. It was our fir- first art center. It was our first, you know, um, industry center, like, you know, having meetings and conventions. And I mean, people from all over came to music hall for lots of different reasons. And it's interesting because it's rare for a historic building to still be used for pretty much what it was used for when it was built. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. Yeah. Like a lot of historic buildings are like museums or they would turn into condos or, you know, that 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 shows a lot of commitment from the community about how important this building is to this community, that it's still used for what was intended to be used for, conferences. and But over the years, I mean, it's had to change a lot to adapt because it wasn't built to be a concert hall and a theater. Like, like to hear choirs, like choral festivals, but it didn't have a stage hmm. when it was first built. I mean, think about that, that that was huge. Like, after, like, you know, the exposition stopped being as popular. And I'm talking, like, they were really popular. Yeah. Um, the centennial of Cincinnati, the celebration in 1888, they were, like, only... 22 or 25 pieces of art being displayed. Um, it made like $440,000 Wow! in the sale of art, like big time. Like I'm talking, people came from all over and um, they would just buy their stuff. You know, cars came out. Oh, it's a new invention. Let's go buy a car at the yeah. exposition, drive it home. Um, so people don't don't realize how many times it's had to adapt. Um, it was a riding school for horses. What? Where? Yeah. How? In the lobby, in Springer Auditorium, which is the center thing. Yeah. Um, UC Bearcats played in North Hall when it was turned into a sporting arena. <laughs> when, what year is that? Uh, 1942, I want to say. Wow. UC. Not... Maybe so, they weren't called the Bearcats then, but you see yeah, played but, there. But it was, you know, basketball, boxing. That's crazy. Tennis, so, a tennis court. So when you said they, there were there was no stage, I, oh, I, yeah. I keep like going back to this in my mind. I'm like, what? wait, 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 what? So like <laughs> so so we still this would be in the middle, the center big hall, right? Yeah, but yeah. they're just like, how was that originally laid out then? I it mean, was just one big box. Yeah. I mean, there, so there were no there like, like balconies little, or anything or Oh, there were. So there was um so what we call balcony is that first raised right. level, right? And then above it was a gallery. Mm-hmm. And the gallery did not extend on all three sides of that space. It was just a little bit of a like a half of a C. Oh, okay. Like a little curve in the back. Mhm. On that third level. And in uh, the 1895-96 renovation, it was the first like real major renovation. We realized we were losing business. Mm-hmm. And the expositions weren't as popular because the, the centennial, the 1888, that actually lost money, even though it brought in a million people to Cincinnati. But it lost money. So they were like, whoa, we need to do something different. They were missing out on traveling opera, which was really hot back then. Um, so they decided to put in a stage, mm-hmm. a raised stage with a proscenium arch, which is that little thing that makes the box. Right? Yeah. So what does that do? Well, you can hide like sets. Mm-hmm. You can hide, uh, make entrances and exits. Um, you can put in a curtain. There was like nothing to hang it from, right? Yeah. And they lowered the ceiling 15 feet. 
because um, when the CSO came to make it its home, um, it was just too big for an orchestra. I mean, that space was built for an organ. And, you know, one of the largest organs, I mean, <laughs> that was, it had to be pretty booming, right? Mm -hmm. And it could seat, like when it was built, it was like, could seat like 5,000 people. And so the seating size re was reduced to about 4,400. Mm -hmm. And they, but they still put in that second balcony. That's with the addition of the second balcony. There were no fixed seating when it first was built. Right. Because it would turn into this, you know, exhibition space. Um, but the floor could go up and down and tilt so that audiences could see above after, uh, at that renovation. And then they put in permanent seating. Wait, yeah. so the floor would move? Yeah. Like it could. It could tilt. Like they could, they can pump up the floor. Whoa. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. And at one point, in one of the renovations, they even raised it. They kept on raising it. So it's like at one point they literally tilted it, um, you know, the, the slope. Like you would have in normal theaters. Yeah. Like eight feet. Right. <laughs> so you can see over people's heads and things like that. And putting in permanent seating, big change. It was a pretty big deal to kind of decide to put in permanent seating because then you couldn't really adapt that room right. as much. But think about it too. It had windows letting light in. Oh, yeah. That wasn't cool for an opera or, right. you know what I mean? So they had to close those up. Mm-hmm. You know, they took out all the... Um, it it was um, what they call poplar wood or like tulip wood. It was this um, really light, beautiful wood all inside, mm -hmm. highly polished. And the newspapers at the time reported that it was like sitting in a in a like a violin, like a large instrument. Huh. It was so beautiful, you know, inside to look at, but also the sound was so great. And um, then they took all that out and they put in plaster. Uh. <laughs> I know. And they pushed back the organ 12 feet so they'd have more room for sets and stuff like that. I mean, we're talking like a huge major renovation. Well, that's kind of, I don't know, that's interesting to me just to think about how much the building has changed oh, my in just, in that, because when we, I, you know, have gone there and over my life, it's looked relatively the same, I guess, mm -hmm. that it makes maybe a renovation feel like, oh, you're, you're, you're altering the the past yeah, in this I way, know. but when you yeah. realize that, like, oh, but that wasn't actually no. the original either. No. Like, it kind of makes it a little bit more palatable to be like, oh, well, okay, things. Well, change. you know, we, you know, there's there's always this talk about. I feel like there's like a natural tension between preservation and making something meaningful, right? right? And with art, you're doing that all the time. It's like, how do you make things meaningful to today's audiences, you know? Mm -hmm. How do you get people to, like, be engaged when, like, their attention span is as big as, like, a video clip on Facebook, you know what I mean? Right. And, and so <clears throat> I, think, I think that's interesting that, you know, Society for the Preservation of Music Hall, I mean, it's an all-volunteer group. I mean, these are people who don't get paid, but yet they're paying, playing such a major role in – in actually preserving certain things rather than updating them, renewing and refreshing them. And, you know, we're, the rest restoration part, I think, like you said, I mean, oh, you know, I don't want it to change. Um, well, there's certain things that kind of have to. I mean, we don't want to go back to water closets, right? Right, right. <laughs> we want really real we bathrooms. We, we do expect bathrooms. <laughs> yes, yeah. and, you know, tiny, tiny seats that you can't move in and, yeah. you know, long lines for the bathrooms because... There aren't enough of them. There aren't enough of them. And, and you know, even just air conditioning being put in back in the day was, like, a big deal. Yeah. You know, Um I don't know. So that's that's why, I mean, Society for the Preservation Music Hall like works in partnership with all the resident companies. Um, but what people forget is that this building has a history of its own that is separate. Right. An origin story that's different than our resident companies. You know, I it's it's really important that they're successful. And I love the fact that our brand, if you will, is associated with these wonderful companies that are just, you know, world renowned. But 
it's a national historic landmark and we forget that. Yeah. You know, no one's ever really told the story and that's why I'm so, so excited to be doing what I'm doing um, representing, you know, SPMH is because we really finally get to tell these stories. They're not just interesting factoids. Mm -hmm. You know, someone actually gets to create a narrative about why it was important. Yeah. So have there been any sort of discoveries about the building while renovating it so far? I know like it always seems like whenever you start poking around old buildings, there's always some kind of like, oh, we didn't know about this. Like that's, you know, especially a building that has such a long history of of other renovations, any sort of weird surprises or anything? Uh, I don't think anything weird. Um, No weird surprises, but some delightful surprises. Like? Um, Well, first is the obvious that people are thinking it's the bones. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, did you know this? That it it, before Sanger Hollow was even there, it was a potter's field, that land. And so people who couldn't afford it or who they considered having to contagious diseases or, you know, just people who didn't have, you know, a home were kind of, you know, just kind of dumped there, right? I yeah. mean, they were put in pine boxes, so of course those deteriorated. And so these bones are just loose in the ground. And um, there's a great story I love to tell about um, in 1927, they, they found these bones during a renovation. I think they were putting in an elevator and they dug down and they thought that, you know, oh, okay, uh, we found these bones, it's 1927. I guess what we do is we just create a cement box and just leave them where they are. Just don't disturb them, right? But then there wasn't any documentation. And so like <laughs> in like the 90s, the, maybe it was the 79 or whatever renovation, uh, uh, 69 renovation, uh, they were fixing something or whatever in that elevator shaft and they found this cement box with bones in it and they called the police <laughs> thinking there was a murder, you yeah. know. And, uh, and yeah, no, it was, it was old bones and, and, and there was a cemetery across the street in Washington park and, you know, and there was like crypts still under there and whatever. But like, so we found more bones. You did find more bones. Yeah, we found more bones. So this actually was a documentary done, um, for Canada, I don't know, about the Bones Music Hall. And we have like a ghost tour because there's a lot of ghost stories actually. Oh yeah. But, um. That kind of just detracts from the purists who want to focus on the history. But that was surprising and, yeah. and fun well, that there's I mean, still bones. I think human bones in a building is part of a history, right? Yeah. Like, that is I a mean, part of is. at least the land's history, if not the building's mm-hmm. history. It's, mm-hmm. It is kind of part of it. I mean, you don't have to necessarily believe in a ghost story to be like, that's weird. Like, yeah, that's exactly. Like, kind of crazy. <laughs> like, I actually, I, I, I love ghost stories and I don't but I don't actually believe in ghosts and I love going on, like I would go on these ghost tours like in new Orleans. And, uh, one of the things that always makes me laugh is like, I'm always interested in the ghost story up until the very end, which is usually when the ghost comes appears in the story, because for the most (laughs) part, these tours are actually really fascinating because they're usually like, here's some really horrible stuff that happened, like really grisly, nasty, horrible things that like human beings did to other human beings. That is truly, bone chilling stuff yeah, you know this yeah. is the scary stuff and then it's like you get through all that and then at the very end they just go and they say on some nights you can still hear her whistling <laughs> you know like you get you get through all the actual horror just to be told that like like on a cloudy night you can see <laughs> her ghostly shroud well seriously there are a lot of people who swear and they have personal stories and these are people in the 21st century you know that have these stories, and we were actually featured. Oh, we have plenty of them too. Here in yeah. uh, 2014, we were featured on the Halloween episode of Ghost Hunters. Oh, I watched. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I didn't get to see it, but yeah. But I mean, oh, um, some God. some other delightful surprises were um, one of the SPMH's biggest projects is Dexter Hall, which is the room that is directly below the rose window, and. Of it was renamed Corbett Tower after the Corbetts helped with the really big renovation in 69, 70s. And um, it was, you know, made all modern, really pretty and all that stuff. But we um, took out the drop ceiling. Mm-hmm. His drop ceilings were really big in the 70s. <laughs> so was sandblasting, by the way, which gets me back to the black brick. But um, they took out the drop ceiling. And holy smoke, there's like 14 feet higher and it's like all coved and we found all of these hidden windows like that were plastered over 
Um, wow. And up on the ceiling is all this incredible, gorgeous stenciling. Yeah. Yeah. We think it was John Reddig, artist at the time, uh, fresco art- artist, but um, there's all this beautiful stenciling on the walls and on the ceiling. And uh, SPMH is restoring that. Um, we, it, a lot of it wasn't, isn't like good enough to save. So they're kind of replicating it, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be an incredible room. It's going to be an incredible room. So we kind of adopted this room as our own and, you know, windows that were covered up, um, the original opening doorways that are just gorgeous, um, with like these little transom windows and, um, they were just going to throw in whatever kind of design on the windows, but like our group, like dug and dug and dug and found original pictures to show like what the tracery was on the mm-hmm. windows. Like it's going to be really incredible. So you, you were saying getting us back to the, the black bricks, oh, which, yeah. which would be a fun way to stop. Uh, to, that would be a good way to finish <laughs> since we uh, started there, but then actually didn't really talk about it that much. No, no. Uh, the, you know, the seventies were just horrible for like destroying old beautiful stuff yeah. like like all this like shag carpeting and you know like all of this stuff was like you know why so would pe- why would anyone <laughs> want beautiful tall ceilings when you could have this delightful drop ceiling <laughs> but they Ugh. sandblasted the building which uh-huh. they didn't know how horrible it was and the mortar on the front of the building now this is really cool and interesting that we discovered in our research the mortar on the front of the building was black yeah. to make a high contrast. And then the mortar on the back of the building was like a yellow, orange. Mm-hmm. So that, think about it, it's the West. When the sun set, the building would glow. Wow. For like three miles away, you could see this huge glowing, right? And it's orange brick on the back. It's more common brick, as they called it. Yeah. And on the front is this hard, almost like a veneer, pressed brick that's really, really dark red. So that was, you know, purposely done. So the facade looked very strong and, yeah. you know, Rundbogenstiel, right? Um, and then the back was this glowing, you know, beauteous thing. But yeah, they sandblasted it. And then they filled in the mortar with cement, which doesn't expand for weather and stuff. So it starts crumbling. And you could still see um, there were certain areas of the building that even before the renovation started that we would go and we would show where the black brick was. And you could see it's like, dark black yeah and if you're not looking you don't really see it but now you could really see it and so all of that's being redone yeah i was just uh in the park the other day and looking at it and i was noticing all the patterns that are being created with the black bricks it's not being created it was there oh so but i mean they're but are they like restaining or yeah yeah so that's what i mean so that they're they're kind of bringing that back out that these cool patterns that you know and they're not like over the top or anything they're just they just but they add this extra little layer they're really it's nice really cool little yeah accents and like the way they kind of run along and create lines or this like checkerboard patterns it's yeah like really that's cool. called diaper work i learned a lot about architecture wait <laughs> this. diaper work before. yeah the checkerboard pattern is called diaper work and then there are trefoil little trefoils all over it mm-hmm. um you know very architectural um, but there's some black like diamonds and trefoils that are being filled in. And the piano keys is what we're, I don't think that's the official term. We're just using that. If you look at some of that patterning, it looks like piano keys, especially over the segmented ah, arches. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that pattern on other buildings in Cincinnati because, and we think maybe <laughs> um, there were a lot of music stores, like mm. a lot. Yeah. And um, one of our tour guides was on another tour um, with another group, and they were talking about this building, and they had the piano key kind of looking uh, feature, and they were like, oh, yeah, this used to be a music store. Do you know how we had this many music stores per square inch, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah? And um, I don't know, maybe when you see that, it might be a music store, old music store. But um, what I wanted to make sure that I said, though, is that this is such a new program that we go out in the community. It's called Beyond the Bricks because oh, we okay. take you beyond the bricks. Uh-huh. And not only do we do tours of the out side of the building, which covers the neighborhood and talks about other architecture in the neighborhood and other history of the neighborhood around us. 
but we are doing deep dives to find out more, like a lady's legacy. We want to find out about the women and the African-American connection and, you know, um, the great organs of music hall and uh, presidents and pop stars. Like we want to create all of these talks that we can go out in the community and go into schools and things like that. Our speaker series, Beyond the Brick speaker series, mm-hmm. and and help have people develop a better appreciation for the building not only just the tours, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like tours in school programs and the speaker series. So well, that's great. Yeah. It's going to be really exciting when we reopen this fall. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, October, right? October 7th is a big um, community open house. Everybody's welcome. There'll probably be a pancake breakfast on who, the, in who Washington doesn't park. Love pancakes? <laughs> uh, the morning, be- you know, the morning of. Yeah. So yeah, it's going to be a really, really big deal. And we're really super excited. Awesome. Well, let's go look at some art. Okie dokie. Um, so we are in Gallery 108 right now, and we are looking at actually a, a couple of objects we've got here that are both uh, revolving around Ruben Springer. Yeah, it's uh, delightful. I didn't know that these were here. And you got all excited when, I did. I, when you saw Ruben Springer, I which is funny. I around the corner. I was like, Ruben, I'm gonna... baby, boobala. <laughs> That's what I wanted because I don't know anything <laughs> about Ruben Springer. So oh, wow. now you're yeah. going to tell me about the art because I don't actually know much about, uh, about the man. Well, he was a very, very humble man. Okay. Okay. And um, he grew up in Frankfort, Kentucky. He moved to Cincinnati. He was working down at the docks, really. Mm-hmm. Re- you know, because that was the big boom of the business. And he um, was a, you know, clerk. Um, he then got into the grocery business and really, I mean, made, he was a millionaire by the time he was 40. Oh, wow. And back in that day, that's a lot yeah. of money. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn my nose up at a million dollars no, today. No, so. and, and he had no <laughs> children. So I don't know what you're going to do if you have no kids to bequeath it to. So, but, you know, being someone, everything I've read about him, he didn't really seem to have what we would traditionally think of as being like a lot of art and culture as a child. Mm-hmm. So, but he was very invested civically in community. And as I said before, you know, the arts and culture were really considered to make you a really good citizen. And because he was such a wealthy leader in the community, he gave a lot of money to the arts, a lot. Um, So Music Hall, he first put up um, his first kind of matching grant, you would call it, um, that we know of in the country is $125,000 if the citizens of Cincinnati would match it dollar for dollar. And even Cincinnati school children pulled together their change to come up with three thousand dollars. Wow. Like $125,000 is like three million three million dollars today, I would say. Wow. Approximately. And then he donated more money for the business people to match it for the exposition wings. And then he even donated more money for the organ that was in the hall. And just he just he was a big arts supporter. So wow. Um, but very humble. So if you look at like like right here is this lithograph that they're showing of Music Hall. We're looking the... at the label right now. And this is for actually there's a vase uh, and dedication medallion from Tiffany and Company that were given to Springer. And at the bottom of this label, we have this um, old image of Music Hall. And so you, what were you, you going to point out about it? Well, um, but what you can't see really well in this lithograph, which we actually show um, in our tours and education programs, but there's actually, right underneath the rose window, there's a place for, like, a pedestal for a bust. Who do you think would go there? Springer? Yeah, maybe Springer, but he was so humble. He was, I'm sure he was like, ex-nay on the bust A, get that out of there. But... well, that's funny because we have a bust of him right over here, too. It's really, in- it's really interesting. But he didn't want any, any credit. He even said, like, my money is no better than the, you know, the hod carrier. He called out the hod carriers, a big old shout out to the people who built the mm-hmm. building and to um, the, the black barber, mm-hmm. right, in the community. These are people who donated money. So he was really clear about his money was no different from anybody else's. So he didn't want a dedication on the building. Also... 
this picture, if you was blown up and you could see it, they're actually like like fresco, fresco kind of um, pieces of art that are like angels dancing and see that angel up on top, mm-hmm. kind of like the um, the Tyler Davidson fountain, mm-hmm. this kind of um, dedication to our art and music that was never put up there too. So there's a lot of little finishes. Yeah. He wanted the building to be plain, but substantial. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but that doesn't look plain. <laughs> no, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, fantastic i would say yeah. with like all of high these. victorian gothic tends to be very grand right yeah so. yeah definitely it does not feel super humble but i can mm-hmm. I, I guess i can also understand it is fairly grounded as far as the building goes you know yeah. it's, it's so overall kind of horizontal and these spires um do kind of accent it but it's not it isn't an over the top kind of building. So I can kind of see from a, from, from a Victorian type of viewpoint where everything <laughs> is kind of full of spires and right, all of right. these little knickknacky details. Well, like, there's it so is many somewhat. different styles in the building, you know, yeah. there's like Romanesque and the run Bogenstiel and, you know, all these different kind of styles in it. That's um, back in the day, they had this little nickname for it. Uh, the, the residents, because they were a lot of them were German, mm-hmm. um, they, they they teased it that it was called Sauerbraten Byzantine. It was like the joke, <laughs> but uh, preservationists would hate if I said that, or architects probably would hate if I said that. But <laughs> but yeah, high Victorian Gothic. But it did it it was kind of eclectic in its style. But see how it like different parts of the building stick out yeah. to accentuate that there are actually three different buildings. It's yeah. not just a flat facade. Mm-hmm. Pretty grand. Yeah. But this is a gorgeous piece. Yeah, this uh, we're looking at the the vase and dedication medallion here that we were looking at the accession number and saw that it was given to the museum um well in 1884 and it was actually when Springer died which was not too long after you know everything had uh, been finished on Music Hall I would guess were Yeah, you know, Music Hall was built and um it's premiere you know, the just the center building, which actually you can see on this one, um, which we call Spring Auditorium right now, um, was built in 1878. And then only the next year did they build the two exposition wings. Yeah, so just a little over five years or so, he, he mm-hmm. passed away. So, um, And it was given to the art museum uh, by, you know, his estate, I guess. It was, uh, mm-hmm. it was given to us. And then we have... Um, these this little medallion that goes yeah that's interesting what do you do with that yeah i don't know (laughs) oh i guess Um, it might hook around this maybe it's like such a substantial piece yeah with the lyres on it i mean you'll see lyres all over music hall i mean they they give this piece to him and it's in and of itself it's a dedication to music Look well, and it has this very this. nice Greek feeling, very classic Greek yeah. feeling with this sort of head on the top here. That's and and even the shape of it is like you know a very almost like you would imagine it more as like a Greek piece of pottery. And the yeah. decorations have a very um, classical feel to them as well. I um, wonder if it meant anything to put it in silver instead of it being like a Greek piece of pottery. Was pottery not as respected back then? I don't know. Well, I think, I mean, I'm sure that would be nice, but I guess also that's not what Tiffany and company is known that's for. That's true. So. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> if, you're, if you're going to Tiffany, you know, <laughs> get them something silver, I would assume, you know. Get them something get, Tiffany. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're, we have a little uh, label over here that kind of uh, talks about uh, Springer's life, and it has this really beautiful watercolor drawing of him that we were also studying it's you know i was i was saying it's unfortunate we can't display that drawing all the time just because drawings and watercolors are are very light sensitive so they have to be stored away but it's it's really really quite beautiful and again look at the the accession number on that one 1881 right so that's the first year the museum was founded but before the building opened in what, 86? Yes, the build, our building opened in 86. So, um, And we were talking about this vase may have been displayed at Music Hall because a lot of our collection, as it was being collected, <laughs> um, right. was being displayed at Music Hall. 
Right, because the um, the Women's Art Museum Association actually that was their headquarters mm-hmm. from eighty two to eighty six. Yeah, um, when the museum was being built, would be yeah being built. So yeah, and again, women made it happen with the cultural, you know, the arts and stuff. So I'm sure he was very um, well connected to women's groups like the Women's Art Museum Association, and uh, probably corralled a lot of these groups to go out and make it happen, make the art museum happen. He's always frowning. Every picture I see of him, I know smiling in pictures wasn't like a big thing back then, but this looks like a downright... A lot of that's sour. A lot of that's practical because if if you think about the long exposure times of cameras, uh, early cameras, that you're you're basically you have to hold a smile for minutes, and Mm, that's hard to do. So that's why everyone looks so sour in those old photographs. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. I thought it was just because they didn't have good dental hygiene. And also, I mean, even (laughs) even if you're just sitting for a drawing or a painting, that takes a long time. So. You, you know, people tend not to smile in those portraits because it just, it's hard Wears to hold out. that. Yeah, it's its exhausting. <sighs> I like my dental hygiene theory better. I mean, you can think that. I mean, maybe they have to put Vaseline on their teeth so they keep smiling like in a beauty right. pageant or <laughs> their brown teeth or whatever. So, well, he almost has a little bit of a smile in this bust over here, though. If he does. At, he actually that. looks a little mo- bit more like like grandpa. And and I mean, when I say a little bit of a smile, it is the basically the the minimal. It's not a frown, right? You the least amount of like one degree of smile yeah. from completely straight face. Like I someone guess. maybe trying not to smile because I you know you right. just told him a joke. Yeah, and it's like Some, they're trying to deadpan in, it. We're in church, and you have to be serious or something. <laughs> you <Right>. can't laugh. <laughs> you know, he lived um, not far from Music Hall. He lived over on what was called Plum Street, like mm-hmm. over by that temple. He had a rhubarb patch. Really, he's kind of a simple guy. Yeah, he didn't have a big fancy house or anything. He was very, wow. very humble. Yeah, and and the big quote that he had in the paper was that you know I have done nothing more than get this started. It's the passion of other people that keeps the stream going kind of thing. So hmm. what do you, to dress I mean, him so fancy, that wouldn't be him. Like he wouldn't be in this like, looks like he's in like sort of tuxedo-y. And then even on here, they mention it. What was it? What did it say? It I thought I read it. Oh, he would have elected more contemporary dress for himself. I guess well, I took that to mean casual. Um uh, so actually what they're saying there is that the, so there's a lot of traditions where actually, if you look across the room at the busts over on uh, their side where we have like Longworth, who's like looks naked and yeah. uh, the lady over here who's sort of draped in this very classical kind of toga. Yeah. Um, you, this is actually, even though to us, it may be a tuxedo looks very formal. Um, this was actually seen as sort of less grandiose because oh, really? you're not putting yourself up on this sort of like Greek ideals. Oh, it, that, it, makes that sense. seems more heroic um, to put yourself almost in this very classical position of mm. someone. Uh, it's almost like you're giving yourself a sense of history. At the ah. time, right? Like you're you're putting yourself in in history before it's even happened. So um, when you see somebody in a bust where, wearing actually like the clothes of the day, that actually is more modest. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's actually what the, what's cool. trying to say. So so in a way, when we're talking about all this modesty, this that even though he's wearing a bow tie and this nice mm-hmm. suit and vest, it, it it actually is is less. Um, hoity-toity than the alternate. That totally makes sense. That totally makes sense. Yeah. That's so cool. Because a lot of the expositions too, not just here, but other places, like they had like Greek, you know, a Parthenon. I actually Mm -hmm. went, I drove to Tennessee on a vacation once and I actually stopped in at some museum that was like a, like a replica replica of a Parthenon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know it, right? Oh yeah, I know. In Nashville. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, the, they had a real regard for the classics. And was that built know, during a World's Fair? I would imagine so. Now that I'm learning what I'm learning now, being in mm-hmm. this role, I'm like, oh, of course, 
It was probably part of the World's Fair, and they saved the building. I think that Nashville had a World's Fair, and I cannot remember the year. And either that or an exposition, because that was kind of this will be one of those things. Now I have to go look up and and finish at the end of the show because if there's nothing more infuriating than listening to a podcast where somebody half has information, you go like, but (laughs) somebody listening right now is is from Tennessee and is like pulling their hair out, going like, "No, you dummies, (laughs) don't you know about our famous Parthenon?" Like all I know is super cool. Yeah. I only know about it. I mean, most of what I know about that is just, uh, everything I know about Nashville. I learned in the Robert Altman movie, Nashville, (laughs) which is, it's so good. Have you ever seen it? (laughs) No. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. No. So it's a movie. Yeah. It's from like the seven, like late seventies. Lily Tomlin's in it. I mean, it's like Lily Tomlin. Yeah. I mean, it's a Robert Altman movie. So like everyone's in it. Like, you know, a really young Jeff Goldblum is in it riding a really big, weird looking motorcycle. Um, uh, Shelley Duvall's in it. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Keith Carradine. Uh, Oh my gosh. It's, it's called Nashville. Nashville. Got it. It's like, it's, it's, uh, one of these, uh, Altman movies where like everyone, there's like a million stories happening and everyone talks over top of each other and it's great. And it's like three <laughs> hours long and it ends at their, their, the Nashville Parthenon. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's great. So right, that's, that's out. my one, uh, every episode movies. I have to have a really big digression about something completely unrelated <laughs> to everything else we've talked about. And that's mine right there. The Parthenon thread. Just trying to get people to watch Nashville always. Um, I'm going to email you once I've seen it. Well, I also, I held back cause when you were talking about the ghost hunters episode of musical, I wanted to talk about it so bad earlier. And I was like, no, 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 no. But, Unless she brings it up. Oh, she brought it up. Yeah, and then I, but you, you, you got, you didn't give me an opportunity to talk about my favorite moment in this episode, which is we've, so we made like, seriously, this was like a joke around here for like ever. We would talk about this still is, um, the the ghost hunters have some audio and gosh i wish you probably would know who they play it for i can't even remember but it was somebody from music hall or somebody who very official and they're <laughs> playing this audio for them and they've got you know some little blip that just is like you know and then they're like it sounds like they've deduced what it sounds like which you know they can hear in their voice. expertise right. like- they can hear voices in this of course and you're like <laughs> i don't know and so they're like it sounds like somebody says, put us back or maybe put us black. Is that, <laughs> we were thinking maybe that's, uh, that, that's a name. And they're like looking at this guy. Hey, gosh, I wish I were. This remember. guy's looking at him like, are you kidding me? Because they're just like, you could tell when they said, they said put us black that they thought that somebody was going to be like, <gasps> put us, did you say put us black? Why? I haven't heard that name in 35 years. Why? Pudis Black, the famed murderer of music. Like they thought they had cracked it wide open. Oh, no. And the guy's just like, nobody's named Pudis, you know? Like, <laughs> you can just see on his face when he's being very polite about it because he's like, oh my um, gosh, I think I know who that yeah, is. No, Scott Santangelo, I, it's gotta be. I don't know. He's so um, awesome. You can just see him. I'm gonna, it makes me happy to just picture if it is him. He was being, just hearing that. He piece. was being very polite about it, just being like, um, yeah, no, I don't think there's anyone by that name. And they're just like, yeah, it's probably put us back then. <laughs> <laughs> like but the bones? I think maybe, maybe. Maybe. But I think I definitely might have done some some drawings of Pudis Black at some point. We started imagining <laughs> what this character would look like. And what he did, like a whole backstory. V- very sinister looking, as you can imagine. <laughs> the name like Pudis, who who wouldn't be? <laughs> well, a lot of those bones are moved to Spring Grove, supposedly, so maybe... Yeah. Maybe Pudis is up there. The the, the spirit of Pudis Black yeah, is, is haunting like, Spring Grove yeah, Cemetery. Yeah. Oh, that makes me happy <laughs> to know that. I think it's interesting that all of his little wrinkles and stuff around his eyes, mm-hmm. you know, like how, I mean, it just looks so, it looks like, it amazes me how someone can do that out yeah. of marble. I, it yeah. just it looks more like if it was clay, I would get it. You know, but it is wow. always impressive when so impressive. I think uh, especially when the artists make marble feel fleshy like that yeah. is always really fun because um, it, it's such opposite of what we know the material to actually be that 
we know it is hard <laughs> and solid and to give it this soft, supple feeling that like yeah. you, you could, um, you know, squeeze it and it would give, um, which is probably one of the reasons uh, marble sculptures get touched a lot, mm -hmm. which is, is something we always have to worry about yeah. here. Because I'm like resisting right know, now because the skin looks so smooth. I know. <laughs> so and it's it's definitely not great, and especially when we're talking about those flawless white uh, marble sculptures. When people touch them with their their hands, even oh, if your hands oil. are clean, you yeah. leave oil, which attracts dirt, and over time that builds up. So that's. One of the many reasons we encourage not touching <laughs> because, uh, yeah, you, you actually end up damaging the sculpture over time. Mm -hmm, so. mm -hmm. He got some eyebrows. <laughs> they are impressive <laughs> Dude, eyebrows. Those are impressive eyebrows. I didn't really think about those right off the bat. but I mean, they, they like got a wave to them. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> yeah. They do. They, yeah, the artists, I think, had a little fun with that, probably. I mean, that's one of the things, too, when, you, when it comes to hair. Um, every artist has that kind of a trick uh, when it comes to dealing with hair because the reality is, like, you, you don't draw every hair follicle, right? Like, right, you can't, yeah. well, no matter what you're working in, drawing, painting, sculpture, it's like you can't do it all. Right. So yeah, you have to just sort of, of suggest the hair. So it's interesting to see how how they do that here. So you get like the some big details of, you know, some big waves and then the little littler details here and there uh, that sort of come in and out of focus almost that sort of suggest many, many all that hair. Um, but of course, they're they're just kind of making it up, you know. A lot of times, maybe some right. of the big details might have been there, but I think that's probably with the eyebrows. You know, they 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 had to show us these are eyebrows. This is this <laughs> yeah. is hair. This is not just his face. Um, and so they giving those little kind of curls and waves and things make it read as eyebrows more. Well, anything else you want to say about anything we're looking at in in the museum? Well. Um... I don't know. Why is this one here with this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's a picture of fruit all of a sudden out of nowhere next to Reuben Springer. Uh, it belonged oh, to Reuben Springer. it belonged to Reuben Springer. So see, you see? doubted us. <laughs> you did. thought we just I threw like up somebody, some pretty fruit. asleep. <laughs> you thought we were asleep on the job. Wow. No, no, that would belong to him. See? Nice. Nice. I, did, I did not know that until I walked over there. <laughs> You're like, honest, I, I, there'll be a, there'll be a connection there somehow. I know when I get there. I really <laughs> have not looked at any, th these three pieces much. I've, I've looked at the, the vase uh, once with a group and it, it was, again, it was a situation where a group just was like, what's that? And I, I thought, I have no idea. And it was like, <laughs> and I think I told him that I said, you know what? I don't know, but let's go look at it and learn I together. Is, I mean, it's fantastic that it has these liars on it. It's really neat, and that whole classical. It's really, really neat. Yeah, it's a it's a nice uh, nice little piece over here. It's huge. Yeah, I know. I shouldn't call it little. That probably like a, yeah, more like a Grecian urn, right? Yeah, yeah. If I knew more about Greek pottery, I could tell you what shape that was. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classical shape. I want to say Let's amphora because that's the only one that comes to mind. Wow, I'm really impressed. Just say that at cocktail parties. I will. Just say, oh. Oh, the shape over there. But I could be totally the, wrong on that mantle one. Is like amphora. <laughs> there's all sorts of, uh, there's like a kylex and a crater, and they, I, but I don't remember what they are now. Oh, no, they, you get them all mixed up. Look at that. I looked up oh, amphora on. Look at that. Who exact. Gets, who gets brownie points? You do. You do. Look right. at, and then even the band that goes around. I'm sure yeah, that that's, that's what a, I said. The decoration, the styles are, are very, uh, very classical Greek. All right. Well, Thank you so much for being my guest and for looking at uh, all this cool art with me, Ramona. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was really fun. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Art Palace. You can learn more about Cincinnati Music Hall as well as their Beyond the Bricks walking tours at smphcincinnati.org. In case it was driving you crazy, the Nashville Parthenon was built in 1897 as part of the Tennessee Centennial Exposition. We hope you'll come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are William Kentridge, More Sweetly Play the Dance. 
Tiffany Glass, Painting with Color and Light, The Poetry of Place, William Clift, Linda Connor, and Michael Kenna. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even Snapchat. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. I mean it. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.